Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Lee Lefevre. Lee is the co-founder of Common Craft and author of The Art of Explanation. Since 2007, Common Craft has won numerous awards, created explanations for the world's most respected brands, and produced explainer videos that have earned over 50 million views. Lee's second book, Big Enough, is arriving September 15th and focuses on a saner, healthier approach to entrepreneurship. Welcome, Lee. Thanks for joining. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, good to see you. Um, we're going to start the podcast with rapid fire. All right. So I know that you've traveled all over the world. I'm just super curious what your favorite country is that you've ever visited, which is like pretty much the hardest question. I'm sure. It is. It is. Um, I have a real affinity for Japan. Um, my wife, Sachi, is half Japanese. She, she grew up in Hawaii. Um, and her mom uh, was a Japanese, a translator, a Japanese translator. Uh, so she grew up speaking Japanese with her mom. And uh, we've been twice. And it is just such a fascinating place. I mean, I need to go. I've never been. Yeah, yeah they just have their own way of doing everything. And it, and it, and it all works really well. Um, yeah. It's just kind of fascinating place. Yeah. So okay, there's so a lot Japan. of favorites. But okay. Yeah, that's, that's one, of the, one of the favorites. One of the favorites. Okay. Favorite subject that you have ever explained? <laughs> wow. Favorite subject. Um, you know, one of the first things that that came to mind, which I, th I felt was like such a hard video, was explaining BitTorrent. Oh, um, is that like because, Bitcoin? No, well, no, it, BitTorrent is a like a sort of file sharing peer-to-peer -peer thing. It's like how people download movies mm. these days. Um, it's it's really complicated. We worked directly with the BitTorrent company, and it took us a couple of weeks just to like conceive the big picture of what was actually going on. What is the best book that you have ever read or that you most frequently uh, recommend? Um, ever. Wow, that's a big one. Um, I think one of the books that I've always thought about a lot is uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Um, he has a way of looking back at history and kind of explaining these huge transformational shifts in technology. And that the title kind of says that it, it's guns, germs, and steel. And those are the things that allowed humans to sort of transform their world and that transformed the human's world. And it just gave me this really cool arc of history, I guess. Wow, that sounds really cool. Okay. What do you feel are the three most important attributes of an entrepreneur, a successful hmm. entrepreneur? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of communication. I think communication is a big deal. I think uh, empathy is a big deal. And I think um, I'm going to not, I have the word in my head, but I can't think of it uh, like stick to itiveness. Oh, yeah. Grit. <laughs> perseverance. Grit. Grit perseverance. perseverance. Yeah, yeah. That totally yeah. makes sense. Are you an introvert yep. or an extrovert? I'm an extrovert. 
I was going to guess that. <laughs> if there was a movie made about your life, what would it be called? <laughs> you seem like you're pretty layered like an onion. I can't wait to hear yeah, the answer to this yeah. one. Uh, I would say like finding the right words. Oh, oh that's a good, <laughs> like, that's really good. Yeah. Because like it kind of encompasses everything. The books, yeah. the explainer videos, your life, your travel, yeah. your seeking. Yeah, I, like I really it. like, I'm, I'm a fan of words and, I, and I'm always looking for the right ones. Yeah. Well, so I, I told you, um, you know, oftentimes I'm getting into the kind of Oprah lay on the couch part. Um, tell me about your childhood and kind of how you became who you are mm -hmm. today. Are there people mm -hmm. who um, inspired you along the way from a kind of drive perspective? Um, you know, my, my family is an entrepreneurial family. Um, my dad, uh, but both, neither of my parents went to college. My mom didn't even graduate from high school. Um, but they started a business when I was, my, my brothers who were a lot older than me were young and the family business is still running. My, uh, my nephew now runs it along with his dad mm -hmm. and it's a goldfish and koi hatchery. Mm. in North Carolina. Okay. So um, we, the company, it's not, it's not my company anymore, but the, the, uh, the company is one of the big producers of goldfish and koi in the U.S. And what, like, if you see someone with koi, like in their garden pool, there's some chance it came from Blue Ridge Fish Hatchery in North Carolina. That's um, super cool. Yeah. Um, so my dad um, has always had an interest in nature and of, of he always, my mom said he always thought he could improve on nature. Mm -hmm. And um, he discovered koi and was one of the first person to import koi from Japan and breed them uh, in North Carolina. And uh, I think that was kind of his own little form of innovation, you know, and kind of pushing what he thought he could do. Yeah. And I, I think that there, he never like sat me down and told me about <laughs> innovation or anything like that. But I think growing up in that atmosphere of yeah. experimentation and looking for, for ways to do things. So uh, really you're from there, you're from North Carolina. Yep. And how did you end up um, in Seattle? Um, you know, I graduated from graduate school. I was in graduate school in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And growing up, Seattle was just always the coolest place imaginable. Oh, it was like, seriously? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, I was, I, I graduated high school in 1991 and that was like grunge time. That was like right I know, when I'm in class Nirvana, of 90, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so grunge Except was Except I was listening deal. to hip hop. I was not listening. <laughs> I listened I, to hip hop too. I was not listening to grunge music. <laughs> my, uh, my first CD was Easy E, Easy oh, Does yeah. It by Thanks oh, yeah. Galison. <laughs> um, easy well, E, I got bitches hip. galore. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, keep going. Wow, I didn't. <laughs> um, uh, so, where was I? Yeah, grunge. <laughs> so you're like, so she can't Seattle say really that cool. on a podcast, but I can. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm thinking like, oh, you want to talk some easy? -E? I can totally do. <laughs> no, no. Um, so, uh, yeah, grunge was a big deal, and after graduate school, I figured that it was like the only time that I could just pick a place and go try and see what yeah. would happen. And that was 1998. Your so. parents probably were thinking it was going to be a year, and here you yeah. are. <laughs> yep. For sure, I lived in Seattle for 20 years after that, mm -hmm. and that's I met my wife within my my wife right now, Sachi, within a couple of years, and uh, kind of never looked back. I mean, it's yeah. the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, uh, there's no place. Are you outdoorsy? Like, why Seattle? Why is this cool? Because of grunge? Uh, well, that was the initial thing. Coffee. Um, I I do like the culture. Like, I think people are open minded here. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that people are, you know, more progressive, mm -hmm. uh, more, you know 
kind of nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> which Did I you like. experience um, the Seattle freeze when you moved here? Have you heard of the Seattle freeze? I, I know what it is. Um, I don't think I experienced it too much. Um, yeah. I, there've been instances, like I definitely felt like I've been frozen out a couple of times when I thought like, that was the freeze. I saw that. <laughs> um, I honestly think that, and people, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I actually think that it's often more Seattle locals, like people from Seattle and forgive me if you're one of them, but I think that, um, that's at the root of the freeze is it Seattle kind of blowing up and, and there being this dissonance between yeah. the locals who so see I it as am, a small town. I am a local. I grew up yep. here and, yep. um, and I see the Seattle freeze and exactly what it is that, that people talk about because I mm -hmm. left for many years, 17 mm. years and moved back. And when I moved back, you know, I brought my husband and he's from New York and we have friends from all over the country mm -hmm. that we've made. And a lot of them kind of gravitate to non-Seattle natives and they're convinced I'm not from here because um, <laughs> yeah. I'm so open. But uh, I, I see it. I mean, even my Seattle friends, like they, they kind of keep it real tight. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. so in that way, I'm not from here, but I am technically from here. So sure. Yeah. Sure. So you moved out here. Um, and tell me how you got started with Common Craft and tell me about that company. Sure. Um, my first job was at a, a data healthcare company in Bellevue called Solutiont. And the customers of that company were like healthcare companies. It was a data company. Mm. And I started an online community program at that company in 1999 and just got convinced that so what is now social media, but online communities at the time were going to be a big deal. And I managed that for a few years and then and then quit that job to start Common Craft as a consulting company, helping organizations understand online communities. Um, and I just loved it. Like it was just my dream job to be able to do that. But what I realized was that um, for me to do my job better, the people I talked to needed a better understanding of social media. Like they might know about features or something, but the bigger picture perception of what it, what it is and what it can do was not, it was, a, it was an unmet need, unmet mm -hmm. need. Unmet need, yes. <laughs> unmet need. Yes. Um, so in, in 2007, when YouTube started to, to blow up, um, my wife Sachi joined the company and we started kind of opening our mind to like what we could do. And we had this idea of explaining social media and putting the videos on YouTube. And we thought, oh, this will be a funny thing. Maybe we can, you know, get a little bit of promotion for Common Craft or something. And so we made these videos that uh, the idea for the format was actually my wife Sachi's idea. It was a camera pointed down onto a whiteboard with pieces of paper and uh, markers and hands, kind of like you're looking over someone's shoulder mm -hmm. and explain things like RSS and wikis and blogs and social media and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And uh, to our surprise, those videos were kind of an early viral hit. In yeah, the I read that. World. I'm like, they just kind of blew up. And you were like, what? How did that happen? Yeah, we were not, uh, we had no experience in video production or education, um, but a really, really a passion for, for you know, explaining things and um, a, a passion for media experiments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, it just was a whirlwind. Um, mm -hmm. And suddenly we got hired to make videos and we continued making our own original videos which were our copyright and uh within a couple of years we had worked with you know google and intel and lego and ford and mm -hmm. a lot of the big companies to explain their products how do you and decide what you're going to make them so so the business now is kind of a selling business um selling selling the videos to consumers and individuals on a membership model mm -hmm. correct yep 
And yep. then also you have a separate part of the business where you make these video explainer videos for companies. So the, the enterprise side of the business, it, is that yeah, right? It, it's true. Yeah. Um, yes. Our main, our main focus is the membership side. Mm -hmm. So those are our original videos and our membership service is mainly for educators who are using them in classrooms to teach technology and the internet. Um, yeah. We often say that, you know, we're the videos are meant for uh, helping people be safe, responsible, and productive online. Um, and so that's our kind of bread and butter is, is doing that. And we like being educators more yeah. than you know uh, producers and or, or like you know custom video producers. But we still do the custom work as well. Yeah. This morning I watched a few. One on like podcasts, ironically. Mm -hmm. yep. Um And then what was the other two? I watched one on um, oh voting, like how how to elect oh, a president. Yeah. I thought that was yep. super cool because yeah. I always feel a little bit like okay, now I'm 48. I should know this. Like, well, how did I miss that day in school? Also explaining bias and like how mm -hmm. that works. So anyway, so how do you decide what videos? To yeah, make? Um, it's a combination of things. Uh, we do <laughs> have. I'm happy a, to send you all of my. Yeah, yeah, no, we're we're always looking. Questions. We we love that. Um, we have a little tool inside our membership uh, website that has uh, the ability for people to suggest and vote on video titles. So someone can can suggest something, and then members can vote it up mm. if they, if they too are interested. So we use that for inspiration. And then kind of looking out and feeling like what's what needs an explanation right now? Mm -hmm. You know, we not long ago explained blockchain because it was come, becoming such a big thing, mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, um, some of the things that just kind of bubble up um, that we feel like there needs to be a better explanation for. Yeah, I haven't um, looked to see if you have it on there, but I feel like I'm in this transition with the kids where suddenly they have their own language and I'm feeling mm -hmm. old. Like the current yeah. slang. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that's funny about that is um, when I first think of that, I think that is a snapshot of, of like a moment in time. Yeah, you can't and really keep current on that. Yeah, yeah. We, we've lear we learned early on to make videos that, that could be as timeless as possible. Yeah, that totally makes and, sense. You're uh, like, I can't really talk about today's word because by tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. People say, oh, you okay. should do something that's in the news. And it was like the for, for our the way we think about our videos, the, the value just doesn't last long enough. That totally makes you sense know, to me. We, we almost uh, we got very close to finalize, finalizing and publishing a video about the, uh, the Great Recession, you know, in 2008. And as we were making it, news would come out and we'd have to update it. And then yeah. right when we got to the end, we were like, we can't do this. We're going to put it out. And yeah. the next week, it's not going to be. You're not going to have to be able to do COVID right now. <laughs> yeah, right now. No, I mean, we did do some COVID related things, but it was more about like why you should wear a mask. and Why you should wear a mask. Right. And so yeah. was the moment of having companies reach out to you to ask you to make their uh, explainer videos a moment of transition in the business where you felt like I'm on to something big or is revenue not a measurement for you mm. of big? Um, at the time it was huge because uh, by the time we started working with companies, we had published two or three videos on YouTube, uh, which produced no money. <laughs> there wasn't an advertising you know, system at YouTube at the time. Um, so we were like, this is great. We have a lot of attention, but it's not paying the bills and we're spending all of our time doing it. So the first couple of clients were like, oh, wow, this, this is a business. We can mm -hmm. do this. How and did very you know how quickly, to price them? <laughs> You're we, like, uh, we underpriced them in the beginning. Yeah, well, we did, I think. I mean, we were new to it. Um, 
I would say it was more like value pricing versus like project pricing, I think. Um, but I think our strategy in that era was always, you know, pushing the ceiling. You know, we would do a project and then the next person, the next, you know, lead that we wanted to work with, we'd up the price a little bit and see how they reacted. And um, over time, it, it grew and grew according to demand. I think mm -hmm. for a while, we were the only game in town. So there was a lot of demand. Like we, we literally got five to 10 leads a day for a few years. Oh my gosh, that's great. It was, and so the explainer videos are more specifically on services or products, not, um, not like training videos. You know, more so we're doing training videos. That's, we actually like that better. I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of advertising. Um, I don't, you know, I think that the role that explanation plays in the world for me is one of education and not of promotion. Mm -hmm. um, so like, for instance, right now we're working with the Colorado State Library System for doing uh, five videos that help librarians understand how to use data and how to understand data about libraries. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a sweet spot for us is, is more on the training side versus, you know, the cool new feature in your new app kind mm -hmm. of thing. And what about recruiting branding? As I was looking at them, I'm like, this would be such a great idea, um, e even for companies that are just so complex and in Seattle, like cloud yeah. center of the world, like half the companies are like, what exactly is it that you do? AI, blah, 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 <laughs> you know, that all kind of fits, or even some of the biotech companies. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think that we, we saw very early on that we were not going to be able to serve the demand unless we grew a big company and started hiring a lot of people. And that, that's really kind of the story of, of the book of Big Enough is choosing to be small, of, of saying, yes, we could be making money, we could be building a big agency, uh, but we actually are, we actually want different things out of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, so we can talk about that later. Yeah. But the, um, the, the big companies, uh, well, let me back up and say, that we realized we couldn't we couldn't service that demand so easily. But what we could do is share our expertise, so we could mm. try to to help people learn how to be better explainers. And that's why I wrote the Art of Explanation, which came out in 2012. That's a yeah. book you can find it. Is that linked with Explainer Academy? It is. So that was 2012. Explainer Academy was a few years later. Okay. And it's a it's a much more like interactive with lots of videos and lots of quizzes and things like that, that, that teach the, the core ideas you'd say from the art of explanation, but there's also a course about making explainer videos using simple tools like PowerPoint and screencasting. That's so cool. That's awesome. So that's kind of how we try to help. Are there teenagers who have expressed interest in becoming involved with the company? Um, no, not really. Cause I feel not, like teenagers not, are just, tapped in more to yeah, technology yeah. and not necessarily explaining, sure. but um, they're so knowledgeable. They're, they're raised in this digital era. Yeah. I think that there's, I'm sure that there are, uh, there are a lot of young people who are doing it. Um, mm -hmm. I think that they probably have, you know, cool new apps on their phones that make, that make it really easy for them to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what you, what is interesting though, is, you know, when we started really focusing on education and our videos being products for educators, um, you know, schools and teachers were our, our, our continue to be our biggest customers. And they um, started making what they call common craft style videos in the classroom. So it became um, a project for the teachers to say, okay, we're making a video. Let's write the script. Let's, let's try to figure out how do we make the war of 1812 more understandable to people. And then they made little videos that are, that are similar to common craft videos. So I think that they're, 
and the uh, teachers say the kids love it. Um, so oh, I think there is, course. there is that, that aspect of it. Yeah. How does the membership work? How much does it cost and yeah. who's the target audience? Yeah. So we have kind of two, two basic plans. Um, one is a called a full access plan and that's what we've had for many years and it's an annual plan and it allows uh, anyone who becomes a member to download, embed or display the videos. So it's kind of way, a way to take the videos with you, to put them in there, put them in your presentation, embed them on your website, um, that kind of thing. And that's, that starts at 159 a year. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's often uh, instructors, teachers, educators, sometimes parents who do that. And then there's volume pricing too. If you work at a whole organization and want to use them as a learning center on your website, then we have plans for that. Um, Our newest thing is a streaming, streaming only plan that's $15 a month. And that's for anybody that wants to learn that can use the whole library to learn from or parents who want to use the library to teach their kids or, uh, you know, teachers who are teaching online who can share their screen and play Common Craft video right through Zoom or whatever else they're using, uh, they can use the videos that way. And that's a, a month-to-month plan that people can, you know, choose to come and go as they need. And so um, how do you compete with, like, YouTube? I know you're <laughs> on YouTube, <laughs> but, you know, like, yeah. um, I just switched my phone over and was trying to get my SIM card out, and it was, like, mm-hmm. facing the wrong direction, and it fell on the ground, and I was like, wait, how do you do this? And I just quickly... My kids, I realized, just kind of Google everything. And I yeah. usually don't. I usually try to figure it out. Um, <laughs> and I just YouTube does like, this is amazing. A quick explainer video on how to put in a SIM card. Yeah. So how do sure, you compete sure. with that? Um, I think that if we were making how-to videos about how to fix your computer or how to design something, um, there would be a lot of competition. But our videos are different. They have a different goal. And you you watch the videos today. Yes. Um, it's about the, our videos and our, our whole approach to the idea is about changing perceptions. It's about like the bigger picture, you know, uh, informing people in a, in a way that kind of gives them tools to analyze the world mm. <laughs> kind of thing instead of point, click, do this. Like yes. that's a commodity to me. What we're doing is very specialized around what I think of as true explanation. We're focused on clarity. We're focused on understanding and, and giving people, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a new perspective on something. Yeah. And um, I'm sure we have competitors. We have, I mean, we don't, I don't know if we could be head to head, but I feel like that we, we think of ourselves as being kind of boutique in that way. Like mm-hmm. people who like us really like us. And, um, you know, part of the idea is bit of big enough is that being a, a two person company who works from home, we don't have to rule the world to support the life we want to live. Yeah. I know. I'm like, I want your life. <laughs> I love it. And the fact that you don't have employees and I love my team, but yeah, oh, sure. it's, it's more, um, more intense as far as you know vulnerability around what happens if this person leaves and i'm yep you know in transition so it's so common it's so common and i don't i I don't i don't say anything i don't think i don't have anything bad to say about uh people who go for high growth startups and who are very entrepreneurially motivated and and i think that's awesome we need more people like that i think my goal with the book and our perspective is just to show that there are other ways. Other like ways that's not, yeah. that's you can not still be an entrepreneur. And not, well, I think you could actually encourage more entrepreneurship through your book because it's like, yeah. I don't have to be thinking of my neighbor who's built this, you know, $30, $40 million company and mm-hmm. has all this overhead and all these headaches. 
or nothing or going to be an employee. I could be in yeah. between. I can still be my own boss and mm -hmm. do it my way how I want to do it. So that totally makes sense. Yeah. So before we so. get into big enough, I want to hear more about the Art of Explanation book. <laughs> okay. That came out in 2012, so That's eight right. years ago. Yep. And it's just centered around making ideas and products and services easier to understand, just like the company. And so almost like the art of persuasion through explanation. There is some of that. Yeah. I think that um, in the very beginning of the book, I, I talk about how explanation, I use this analogy of like running, right? Like we all know how to run and you think like, well, I mean, you just run, right? Like you don't have to think about it, but if you actually talk to someone who's really good at running, they can show you that you can run for longer, faster if you do a few things right. And, but for most people, we just take it for granted. I just run when I run kind of thing. And I think the explanation is the same way. We all do it all the time. So much so that you take it for granted. You're like, I just, that's just how I do it. And I don't think it occurred, occurs to a lot of people that they can actually, it's a skill that you can build and mm -hmm. you can hone and you can use as a competitive advantage. And, and what are the kind of two or three key takeaways from that book? Um, I think the biggest is probably uh, that explanation really depends on your audience's perception. It's all about knowing your audience, knowing what your audience knows or learning as much as you can about what your audience needs and wants and what they already know. Um, that, that, that sense of empathy of understanding what it's like in their shoes to be hearing your words is a big thing. Um, a big thing that I talk about is, is understanding the idea of the curse of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, I loved that. It, it's so that. perfect. Well, interestingly, I had my friend Chad Robbins on, on the podcast, who's the CEO and founder of a company called Adaptive Biotechnologies. Mm -hmm. They just went public mm -hmm. and um, they're doing gene sequencing and um, crazy adaptive immunotherapy mm -hmm. and I mean, crazy stuff. And yeah. on the podcast, I said, can you just, pretend that you're talking to Layla, who's my daughter, who's mm -hmm. 10, because you do, it's almost like the more you know, the more you aren't able to empathize with what somebody doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's super easy to do. I think we, we all have the curse of knowledge, yeah. you know, and, but part of understanding that it exists is kind of thinking when you're writing something or communicating something like, is this the curse? Is this, is the curse impacting me? And like trying to think about, okay, who is the persona of the market I'm trying to reach and what are mm -hmm. they going to think of these words? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I often say that, that part of communication and part of explanation is, is not necessarily making something plain or simple. Like there's a role for that, but I think an explanation that it, it's really making it familiar because familiar allows you to adjust it to different audiences. Whereas simple is like a one size fits all. This is for kindergartners and anybody else above that. Mm -hmm. But familiar allows you to think like, okay, I'm talking to physicists. I'm a physicist and I'm talking to physicists. It's really about, communicating from a f familiar perspective and not a simple perspective. Interesting. And I would imagine also it would create a certain safety that mm -hmm. if somebody is explaining something in a way that, you know, makes it accessible, that you could feel safe kind of leaning into it and asking the right questions without yeah. feeling like you're supposed to fake, like, you know, what's happening. Oh yeah. I know. Like I, one of the things that I think perpetuates explanation problems is that it's, practically not socially acceptable to raise your hand in a meeting and be like, I don't mm -hmm. understand this. What's interesting is <laughs> I've, I've sat on a couple of boards where people say that I'm adding a lot of value and I, I'm, I'm not saying I have this imposter syndrome, but I do feel sometimes like other people have more knowledge around the subject matter. 
but I, I don't know if it's a female thing versus a male thing, but I'm always the one in the room that's like, wait, 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 slow down, stop. I raise my hand and say, I have no clue what you're talking about. Can that's you start awesome. over? I have no yep. problem. Um, my confidence in feeling vulnerable around um, being yeah. confused is really strong. And so if I'm yep. confused, I can't, um, I can't deal with that feeling. Yeah. And so I like to say, wait, can you just back up and clarify what you're saying? Yeah. And so I a lot of other would. people will say like, that was really helpful for me, but I'm surprised by how many people don't feel comfortable doing that. Yeah. I think it is a confidence thing. Um, I do think that that's part of the root of the problem though, because for, for both for anybody is that it doesn't allow for there to be a feedback loop. So mm -hmm. the person who is speaking, who is confusing everyone, if people like you don't say something, they think it's great. Everybody understood that. And then, yeah. you know, they don't know that they can be improved. And there's not often great ways to pull someone who is your superior aside and say, Hey, that was not as clear as it could have been like that. That just mm -hmm. doesn't happen very often. Yeah. It's interesting because I'm sure when you're at like a dinner party or a cocktail party or whatever, and you're explaining mm -hmm. literally what you do, that mm -hmm. you've made a life and a career out of explaining mm -hmm. <laughs> stuff. That it's like, who would have thunk like you would end up here? If you weren't yeah. doing this, what do you think you would be doing? Um, I think I would enjoy being a journalist. Okay, so it's um, your curious mind is consistent in both of those things. Yeah, and I think like a knowledge. Yeah, search for truth. Yes. You know, I think that's part of it. I, I, I admire journalists. Yes. Um, you know, I don't think I want the lifestyle of a journalist necessarily, but I do respect the profession and I, I, I'm sort of, I could see myself enjoying it. Yeah. And so um, tell me a little bit about the book. So it's coming out in September. We'll put this podcast out then in early September. We'll time it so that we go bang, like all at the same time. Perfect. Boom, Perfect. here's the book. Bam. Bam. And how do you measure success around books? And um, is it like a number of books sold or yeah. feedback um, or reviews? Like how I've never written yeah. a book. So I'm just curious. Sure. Um, gosh, there's a lot of, there's a number of metrics. Um, there's a service called BookScan. There's a couple of them, I think that they collect all the sales from all the retailers anywhere the book is sold. So that's kind of the bottom line of like, how's the book doing? Well, what does BookScan say? Of course, Amazon is the kind of gorilla in the room too. So Amazon has their own analytics. Um, one of the things that I look at, whether it's healthy or not, is the bestseller rank. So you know how every Amazon product has a bestseller rank if you've ever looked in the details. So um, you can see how your book is doing relative to other books overall or within specific categories. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting way to see how the book is doing. Yeah. And um, will you do some press and promotion around the book? Uh, right now we're doing a pre-order campaign, which this won't, this won't age well on the podcast, but we're one of the things just if, because you're curious about this is um, if you see authors talking about pre-orders, like pre-order my book, pre-order my book, the reason they're doing that is because pre-order sales all count on one day. Mm. So if you're if you're selling pre-orders for months, it all count. It all is logged on the on the day the book launches. Mm. So if you have tens of thousands of pre-orders, then your book becomes a bestseller that day. Oh well, let's pre-order. Like, well then, let's put this out next week. <laughs> yeah. So I'm starting the, pre the, the the pre-order campaign is now going. And I'm looking now. I'm like on the podcast, and this is so inappropriate. But I'm pulling out my calendar. <laughs> okay, it's coming out on the fifteenth. Yeah, but it's available now. If you get a big enough dot life right now, okay. you can pre-order it. 
So here's um, what we're going to do. We're going to put it out on September 1st. Okay. That's, that's perfect. Great. Okay. That's yay. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's so awesome. I'm really excited about it. Um, unlike uh, with the art explanation, I worked with Wiley, which is a big publisher. Um, and this time it's a hybrid approach. So I'm, the big difference is with Wiley, um, with any major publisher, they are taking a risk on the author because they are spending money, their money to get it designed, produced, printed, all that stuff. And then I earn a share of the money that they are essentially making from the book. Mm. And that's the normal way it works because usually authors don't have the money to invest in getting that done. So publishers do that. Um, so in this case, in this case, I'm actually investing in the success of the book and working with a company called page two in Vancouver, Canada, that, uh, has all the professional editors and designers and producers. Um, but it's my investment and it's my sort of break even point or my bottom line that I have mm. to earn back and not the, not the publishers. Um, so it's a, it's a form of self publishing, which I'm really excited about. One of the things about big enough is, um, you know, trying to find ways to be an independent media producer and cut yeah. out the people, cut out the people in the middle. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So what is big enough book about, Mm -hmm. What's your kind of elevator pitch? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that, you know, when I think about the future, I think there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of people wondering what's going to be next for them and whether or not they want to get things to go back to the way they were. And I think for people who are entrepreneurial, that now's the time to maybe think about uh, how to build a business that's not just a big growing business, but a resilient business and a business that's smaller and easier to manage. Uh, that's sustainable. And, and that's really what we, we did at Common Craft over the past decade. We proved it could be done uh, with a two-person team working from home. And I think, that, um, I think that people are starting to see that there's different ways to think about success and living the good life. And it, it doesn't always have to be uh, about the bottom line, that, that quality of life can come from things like having the choice to live where you want or to spend more time with friends and family or to be independent. And to me, that's that's the future of, of success is, mm -hmm. is seeing that it's not just money. I think that's, well, and it can be both. That money doesn't mm -hmm. have to be the, yeah. the, a bad thing. It just doesn't mm -hmm. have to come with all the headaches if you can structure the business right. And if you, you know, a lot of people are like so focused on revenue and they're not necessarily focused on profits. And so mm -hmm. if you're like, hey, how can we make a profitable business with mm -hmm. low, head, low, low headache um, yeah. that's sustainable? To me, that's yeah. the that's the winning formula right there. But what was the process like for you? And when did you write this book? Um, I essentially finished the writing late last year, so it okay. was written pre pre pandemic, and I'm very thankful that oh, the message, yeah. wor the message works in this so environment. Perfect. Yeah, it works really well. Um, but I'd written it over a couple of years. Um, <laughs> in 2015, the winter of 2015 2016, uh, we drove across the country and lived in Charleston, South Carolina, for three months, and then drove back. And along, this is kind of a sad story. Right before we left, our dog was diagnosed with lymphoma. And uh, literally 17 days before we left, the doctor was like, he's got lymphoma. If we do nothing, he'll die within a couple of weeks, kind of a thing. And so it was this just crazy, sad, hectic time in my life. And I started writing and it was cathartic. And I started writing about the business and our personal life and the dog stuff. And it was the first time I thought like, I really love this writing I'm doing maybe this could be a book and it evolved over a couple of years to be less personal and more business oriented. And then when I started working with 
um, Amanda Lewis, one of the editors at Page Two, she helped me transform it in, into what is really more of a, a business book, but, mm -hmm. but one that reads like a story. Oh, I can't wait to read it. That's awesome. Very cool. I'm sorry to hear about your dog. Did you get a new dog? <laughs> yeah, we have two doodles now. <laughs> a labradoodle? I have a labradoodle. Yeah, ours is a, a Bernadoodle, so oh, it's a Bernie's oh, you have a Bernadoodle? Dog mix. Do you know <laughs> yeah. there's like a two-year wait list for Bernadoodles right now? Oh, they're really? Wow, oh, yeah, they're the hot that. dog. I would normally show you, but my wife took them away because we need quiet for the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's so cool. cute. Oh, I love it. Are you going to write a book ever about your travels around your kind of world travels? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that was so long. That was in 2006. Still, um, like everybody says they want to do that. And then the fact that it sounds like you really are living your best life, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was a once in a lifetime trip, I feel like. Now it, now it's it's crazy to think that anybody, you could ever pull that off now with everything happening. Well, hopefully we'll be past it soon. Yeah, I hope so too. So talking about COVID, like how are you dealing kind of um, mentally and emotionally? How do you unwind? um and stay yeah. centered right now yeah um i'm like wah, no we <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> no it's a good question i you know we moved away from seattle uh, about a year and a half ago so i live in a rural place i live on orcas island and so we're, we're quite isolated so right. um, most of the stuff we do doesn't involve a lot of other people and we can kind of choose to be around people when we when we want um and honestly there's parts of of COVID that have been kind of nice. And I, I think this would be, the, be true in Seattle too. Um, you know, I've always suffered from the fear of missing out, you know, FOMO. And, and once everybody was locked down, I was pretty sure that nobody was out there doing something that I should be doing, that everybody's pretty much doing the same thing. And that, that gave me a lot of yeah. help. Are you, on social, are you on social media right now? Um, right at the moment? No, not, not literally <laughs> yeah. while we're recording, but like yeah. in yeah, life. I, I, Okay, so I, I feel like the FOMO is creeping back in because people are mm. doing um, COVID so well. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> they're rocking, they're rocking COVID. They're rocking yeah. the pandemic. No, but there are, there, it's gone through the waves. Like, right, we got the, mm -hmm. the sourdough wave. We, had, we did puzzles and, you know, paint by numbers and getting the puppies. Sure. And, but now people are out, you know, with summer, there's a whole lot of boating and cool mm -hmm. outdoor activities and lots of hiking. And sometimes yep. when I'm working and sitting, you know, inside, I'm having FOMO that I'm not being outdoors enough. So I, I suffer from that yeah. too. And COVID has been helpful for me in that way. Yeah. yeah. In that definitely. way of like, okay, wait, I actually am really good right now being home and being centered. And I think that's the thing. Yeah. I think that's the thing is like, I think that it's showing people, including me, that I can actually be satisfied without all that stuff. Yeah. Like that I can be satisfied. I can, I can be satisfied just at home, cooking dinner, watching TV, whatever mm -hmm. it is, hanging out that that's, that's great. Except for you don't <laughs> you have know? Uber Eats and Orcas <laughs> That is true. International food is in short supply yeah. uh, on Orcas. There is, Orcas punches above its weight food wise, but I know international food is, is the one thing that I wish there was more. Well, maybe of. that's your new thing. You're a 3.0. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, we talked about a group of friends as each of us specializing in a different like Asian cuisine, like yeah. somebody would do Chinese, Japanese, Korean, whatever. Oh, for sure. Thai. And then that, that would be our own way of having, uh, you know, uh, international restaurants is just each other's houses. Yeah, it, sounds, it sounds perfect. <laughs> well, I think it sounds amazing. So my ultimate question I ask everyone on the podcast is what fuels you? Wow, that is that is a really good question. Well, thanks. Um, it's the name of the podcast. I know. Wow, I should have been, <laughs> and I, I should, I really should have been more prepared for that. I guess. Huh? Um, 
what what fuels me is I think I have always written a lot. I've always shared a lot online. And there's a quote from an author. I think it was a woman who said, like, I just want people to see. I want people to see what I see. And um, that's kind of part of what fuels me is like, I want people to see that they can be better explainers. I want the, to see that they can make a choice to have a different kind of company or that they can be living a different kind of life. And I think like what, what fuels me is this like really heartfelt and like to the core idea that I want to help people see that, that they can be different, that things can be different. Yeah. I love that. Well, you're doing it. And, so. um, and I hope that this podcast helps others learn about you and learn about your business and your books. And, um, and I feel really grateful for the opportunity. It's been great. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Thank you. Stay safe. Yeah, you too. Okay. Talk soon. Yep. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.